Moncrief on News Talk. Joanna Fortune joins us once again. Good afternoon, Joanna. Afternoon, Sean. Right, here's your first question. I'm planning to explain puberty to my six-year-old son. However, the only books that I have on that cover sex and baby making, and we haven't read them yet. My question is, do you know how I should approach this topic with my child? Should I get him a book about it? I don't want to go into pictures of people making babies, uh, but more something suitable for a six-year-old boy about their body and its changes. What would you advise? Hmm. I think, you know, I think it's great that you're already proactively thinking, how am I going to talk about this with my six-year-old? Because I think too often we leave the conversations about puberty and body changes until they're actually happening. You know, we've noticed a change. Oh, gosh, we better talk about that, as opposed to normalizing it and just putting it out there from the beginning. Now, that said, I would always like to think about it as don't see it as, as, you know, it used to be called the talk. Have you had the talk? Don't see it as the talk, but as a talk, you know, so that it's something that you are opening up and it will be an open, ongoing conversation because that means you avoid that urge to just sit them down and bombard them with, here it is, here's the talk, brace yourself, kid, and you give it to them all at once. It's much more effective if you embrace it in a casual, ongoing, normalized way. You know, children are always curious to know about their bodies, even from a very young age. So it's this is about how you say it, not that children are too young for it or anything like that, because they're actually innately curious about their bodies and love to know things like that, particularly at this kind of six to eight year old age. It's, it's something they're very into. I would say that be he six, be you thinking and listening and it's a two, three year old child you're parenting, always use appropriate body part language, you know, call them what they are. Don't use any pet names or other names for body parts. Just call them what they are and normalize language from the earliest stage. I would always keep, you know, a talk like this. Keep it short and succinct for very young children. Don't flood them with lots of detail, but just give them enough to satisfy curiosity and show them that they can bring questions, clarifications and curiosity to you. So I also think it's useful to use natural moments to trigger the conversation. For example, like if you're looking back on old photos with your child and they're seeing themselves as a baby, you have a natural opening to say, well, look at how you've changed. Look at how your body has changed. You've grown tall and, you know, bodies are changing all of the time. For example, and you have an end to talk about bodies changing. So don't just kind of say, <clears throat> OK, here it comes, because it just it's the child is like, OK, what's this? They feel the awkwardness in it. So keep it more natural and fluent like that. And I always think the first time you have a conversation like that with you, it shouldn't be with your child. So practice it with somebody else so that you're very used to the language and what you want to say. Um, it's also, you know, six to eight year olds. They're, they're very body curious from young ages. But now they become, you know, they're curious about experience exploring their bodies. They may even have been engaging in some self-touch, self-exploration, even masturbation. They know that touching your body is pleasurable. So having a conversation that normalizes all of that framed within, look, the important thing is that we do this in private and we wash our hands before and afterwards. This is also an age where you can bring in natural conversations around consent, body boundaries. You know, if your child, even something as simple as they're crawling onto your lap and you could say, oh, please don't crawl onto my lap. It would be nice if you asked me first or whatever. 
whatever it is. You know, it's not about rejecting your child. It's about saying, hey, let's talk to each other about what is and isn't okay. You're also introducing um, at this age about sharing these concepts. They have a much better grasp of it. And that leads you naturally to talk about respect. So kind of the everyday parenting conversations about boundaries and sharing and respect and normalizing body curiosity and exploration, you're already having this conversation. Mm. So it doesn't have to be a, you know, here it comes. Actually, when you think back, you'll find I've already started this. All I'm doing now is growing up the detail. In terms of books, there are so many books. Some of them are good. Some of them are rubbish. You know, so you really have to do some research on this and see what's going to be right for your child. Um, there is somebody called uh, Robbie Harris, Robbie with one B, not two. Um, and for very young children, it's a book about It's Not the Stork. Now, it is about baby making, but it brings in body stuff. And then for older children. So, you know, I, yeah, the age you're talking about upwards, it's what's happening to me. And that goes into more details about those body changes and puberty. Um, so there's lots of information out there, but I always think go through it yourself first to be sure that it aligns with your values with a narrative you're comfortable with and then practice talking about it but I guarantee you're already having the conversation mm. so think of it as growing it up rather than starting it uh, I must say mummy laid an egg Babette's cold book was uh, oh, yeah. very useful uh, she also has a book called hair in funny places which I yes. assume is on the issue as well and that's on puberty actually that's yeah. a good that's a really good book for that yeah uh, given though that the, um, it's only a six-year-old and they haven't read them the baby making books yet should they kind of go to their, that first before they get into puberty yeah, I mean, I think it's interesting, Sean, because like, I'm wondering what has sparked the puberty piece. And maybe it's, you know, as as parents, sometimes we're looking back to, well, how did I learn about this? And I didn't know enough and I wish I'd known more. And we'd kind of compensate that way. But maybe he has questions. Maybe there's a teenager in the house. Maybe maybe something has been seen. So I don't know what may have you know sparked this piece, but certainly don't only have it about baby making. Maybe in this situation, also the baby making piece has already been discussed. And now it's about extending that conversation to body changes. So, yeah, I mean, I would definitely include the baby making piece if you haven't done that for sure. Um, I think that's really, really important as well, because also that conversation, as you know, sparks loads of other kind of, well, mm. now that you've told me that, I'm wondering about something else. <laughs> and when it's child led and child initiated, they're getting the answers to the questions they have rather than what we think they just need to know. Uh, a couple of texts on that. Kira says, why is this person complicating the issue by addressing it with a six-year-old? I don't have a prudish objection to this, but a six-year-old just won't have a clue what you're on about. It's safe enough to wait until around 10, surely. Well, it depends because um, actually puberty can begin any time from eight years old, really the early stages of it. So that really depends on on the child you're parenting. It, I don't think it's that prescriptive of that's time enough and that's too early. I think you have to go with your parental instinct on it. And Pauline says, as a matter of interest, what's the issue with the pet names for genitalia? I think when we want children to be able to know what feels good and doesn't feel good and what's safe and not safe, and we want them able to talk about what happens to them in, say, abusive situations or extreme situations, giving them appropriate language, no more than you don't say footy-wooty, you just say foot. Mm. You know, that we tend to use this softer language around genitalia because sometimes that comes from an awkwardness or inherited historic prudishness around talking about body parts as they are. It's just helpful for children to know what everything is called and to normalize talking about body parts in that way. 
Right, next question is this. My five-year-old loves school and skips in and out each day. I was floored recently when the teacher told me she was concerned about my child in that she was distressed in class and finds it difficult to process things. The teacher also said that my child would put up her hand and tell her things out of context. She said she wants to carry out an assessment of my child but hasn't really explained what this means. The teacher is young and inexperienced and I feel some anxiety now with the teacher and how she perceives my child. I do not see this behaviour in her at all. I think it's a personality conflict between them and I'm terrified about this proposed assessment. What can I do to help my child if she is feeling under pressure in school? Ooh, okay. Mm. Um, there's so much here. Minefield there. <laughs> yeah, there really is quite a lot here. So the fact that it opens with, I was floored, that this really has caught you off guard. And that further down, you say, look, I don't see this behavior in her at all. So just, I would say, row way back on this and ask some questions. First of all, as the parent, your consent is needed before any assessment is conducted. So you can say no just to put that out there. And also just to express some curiosity, because it isn't clear from me, you know, what is the assessment? What is being assessed? Who is assessing? And are they qualified to do that assessment? And what kind of an outcome or report will be generated? And where will that information be stored? These are some basic questions that you absolutely have a right to inquire about. Um, You know, because I suppose the teacher has said, you know, she seems distressed in class. I'd want some examples of that, like what, you know, because distressed, I know what it means to me, but it might mean Mm. something else to someone else. Some examples and how is it handled? I mean, our children have had to readjust from prolonged time out of school. So some emotional wobbles and, you know, uncertainty and dysregulation is to be anticipated, especially for five-year-olds. They're probably junior infants at that stage. The other thing that jumped out at me, John, was, you know, my child puts up her hand and says things out of context. So does every five-year-old. Yeah. That's like, like, that's what they're all about. Absolutely. Because their little brains are carrying so much and absorbing so much. They're only half listening to the question being asked anyway, because they're thinking about something else. So in and of itself, that's not enough to warrant an assessment of any kind. In and of itself, the distress is enough for me to be, well, what's distressing her? How does that look in the class and what happens before and immediately afterwards? And how does she recover from that? So I I think you've got questions here. I would, you know, you're the parent in charge. You have no concerns of what I'm reading about your child until this was said to you. Speak to the teacher and or the principal if appropriate, but don't go to the principal in a way that you're telling on the teacher, because I think you're just going to create an unnecessary layer of tension there. But go to the teacher first. And if you're not satisfied with the clarifications, then flag to the principal, you know, what is this about? But as the parent, nobody can assess your child without your consent. Yeah. And also as well, five-year-olds, sometimes it it can happen for ages and ages that they just don't understand something and then one day click, they understand it. Oh, Uh, absolutely. I mean, five years old, you're still very much a developing system, you know, and you're still learning about the world. And lots of children, especially at this age, are they do much better when they're learning in their own safe, familiar environment. So at home. So it's not, you know, unusual that you'd say, I don't see it at home, but they do see it in school. They're different environments. But also she may be a child who just learns in that very practical, playful, experiential doing, not sitting and thinking and learning way. And again, nothing wrong with that. So I there wouldn't be enough here for me to understand 
what is being assessed. And mm. I, I, I'm getting that the parent doesn't understand either. So definitely go back with questions. Don't go in with it in terms of, you know, they're having a personality conflict, because if the teacher has a concern, hear it out and see where that concern is coming from. And maybe there's a couple of practical things that you could do when summer break comes to ready your child for that transition back in September. But uh, but, you yeah, know, I, I j- be curious. Be curious. <laughs> Be curious, yes. Brian says, as a parent, I understand this texture's fear. It's sort of a taboo subject to question a teacher's motivations in this regard. You'll always be characterised as an overprotective parent, but the reality is that teachers are flawed human beings just like the rest of us. I suppose that's that's absolutely true. I don't absolutely know. true. Um, but I mean, you know, being a young teacher doesn't mean I don't know what I'm doing. Some of the, the most engaged teachers I've ever met are straight out of their training schools and into the classroom. Mm. So, you know, I, I think this is I, th- I feel like you've got the word assessment and you don't know what came before it. And that's the piece I'd be interested in, because the word assessment is a little frightening, especially if you're not the one who looked for it and it's been said to you. So I think yeah. go back and see what that's about. Uh, on the previous question of uh, uh, telling kids about where babies come from uh, and or uh, puberty, uh, one texter says, my daughter is eight and was curious about boobs and periods. So we got a book about puberty called celebrate your body and its changes too and she's enjoyed it but she was a bit worried about certain things so we're answering her concerns as they come up I was a bit worried that maybe I'd given her too much too soon but I'm relieved to hear that this is okay we have a book about making babies but I'm building up to it but now I feel it's time for uh, to just go for it Uh, so (laughs) there you go let us know how that goes Uh, you are listening to the Moncrief show on News Talk we do have to take a break Uh, uh, more questions for Joanna after this including one about a one year old who won't say the word mama. 53106 is our text number that will cost you 30 cents. Joanna Fortune uh, is still with us. Uh, Here's the next question. My one-year-old has been speaking a few words for a couple of months at this stage. Her words are dada and water. Obviously, I feel very chuffed that she knows my name, but no matter what we do, we can't seem to get her to say mama. My partner is starting to get upset about it. Is it normal for a baby to say the name of only one parent for a period? Absolutely normal, you know, and children, when they start playing with language and playing with sounds, it's not like they're saying, oh, I'm aware I'm calling dad and not mom. It isn't like that, you know, sometimes, I mean, it was often said that children said dada first because it was easier to say. Um, And, you know, there's some kind of two schools of thought and that is that it. But whatever it is, it's not preferential treatment or an expression of preference for one parent over another. It has much more to do with how they like the feeling of a particular Mm. syllable. Don't forget that, you know, playing with sounds, playing with language, it's actually a sensuous experience for the mouth. And if I like the way da-da sounds, it's a syllable repeated twice in a pattern, you know, so it's ma or da or ba. Some of them go ba-ba first, you know, whichever way it goes, it's to do with how I experience that sound. And language acquisition is a process. And really, it takes, you know, 12, 18 months, 18 months before you're going to hear anything more than that coming out. So but also hold in mind that babies imitate sound. So and I assume when you say we've tried everything, but if you both say mama a lot and point out mama and also bring your little one's hands up to the lower half of your face when you're saying mama so they feel 
the way your mouth and your face moves to produce the sound. Be playful with it. And, you know, where's mama? Where's mama? Oh, there she is doing a bit of peekaboo and concealment discovery, all of that play with it. But this isn't something I would worry about. And it's certainly not any kind of a statement about I prefer this parent to that parent or I don't want to call that parent. It's not like that at one year old. Right. Okay. And is Dada, I was kind of thought, I'm labouring under misapprehension, but Dada actually might be easier to say. Yeah, that was always what was out there. And there's certainly still a kind of belief that it can be an easier sound to produce than mama is because of the way the mouth has to move. But, you know, sometimes you'll always have someone who's like, well, in our house, it was mama first. So it can go with whichever sound the child loves to say. And anyone with small children knows they can latch on to any kind of random sound. Mm. And because they like it, they repeat it, repeat it, repeat it until they're done with it and they move on. So it's like when it moves from dada to daddy and mama to mommy it's actually about language acquisition rather than oh it's you i'm calling (laughs) you know that takes a little bit longer so try and it can be so easy for me to say all that and when you're the parent who's Mm. just dying to hear that sound is dying for your child to look up at you and say mama and i recognize you as such and that's such a beautiful moment that of course it's upsetting when you're like well she can do it with him why not me i'm here doing all of this your parents can take it very personally um and i totally get that but honestly it's not meant as a personal thing at all it's not personal from your child though it certainly can feel personal for you My 12-year-old daughter has recently been diagnosed with dyslexia but has expressed frustration at home about it. She's in sixth class at the moment and worries that she will fall behind her peers in secondary school. As she's very attached to her friends, none of whom are going through something similar, I'm finding it difficult to alleviate her fears. I've tried to be supportive and get her extra assistance, but she's really taking her struggles to heart. What should I do? Yeah, I think it's that piece for me about, you know, I'm struggling to alleviate her fears. You know, they're her fears and I think they're real and they have context and she is specific about what she is fearful and she's able to express that to you. And she's 12 years old. That's fantastic. You know, that she can say, look, this is the diagnosis. I'm struggling with it. It's bringing up these fears for me. Here's why I'm afraid. Here's what I'm afraid of. And she's speaking about it. Great. Keep that going. Keep that open communication and expression about the dyslexia. Empathize, in other words, with it, you know, allow her to express all the fears and frustrations openly with you so that you can then reflect back what she's saying. Okay, so here's what I'm hearing you say, and you're saying it back with, you know, affect and meaning. Um, But you do so without rescuing her without minimizing or without dismissing those fears. So you don't say, oh, it's nothing to be worried about. Oh, look, this is really normal. Even though we know it is, it is that all I'm hearing is, oh, so you're saying I'm worried about nothing. That's yet another thing I can't do. Mm. You know, kids can take it very personally. What I really want is that you can bear witness as I struggle to get my head around this, as I struggle to integrate this diagnosis as a part of me, not all of me, but a part of me. So keep going back and you'll have to do this many times and explain the diagnosis itself to make sure that she really understands what it is, but moreover, what it isn't. You know, it's a word and it's a word that explains how your brain learns in a particular way. And that helps us to know what additional things we have to put in place that's going to help you 
to learn alongside your peer group, your friends, all of that, and then identify all of the strengths that she has, everything that she's good at. I think that can be really, really helpful. I think just as she is adjusting to this diagnosis and, you know, getting through the discomfort so she can be comfortable with it. So too are you as her parent, because you're. I'm hearing in this, you know, you're thinking, look, we've put supports in place. We're thinking about what else she needs. You're trying to anticipate her needs. So let her know that you're working it out as well and that you're discovering more and more about this that's going to be helpful as you all move forward. There are books, of course, there are books, you know, um, things like I I remember John there was one that was put out a while back by the children um, in Ennis National School and I was looking up exactly what school it was and that then put uh, brought me to dyslexia.ie which has tons of resources um, in this area so if that parent is listening that would be really worth doing is linking in with an organization like that but the children in Ennis National School a while back wrote a book so it's written you know for children by children and it's called dyslexic brains learn differently And that was a lovely book Um, around her age. They were that were writing that. There's a couple of other books out there as well. There's Dyslexia Teenager's Guide. There's It's Called Dyslexia. But sometimes people are like, books are not the best way for my child to learn about their dyslexia. There's also plenty of videos um, on YouTube. There's a Dyslexia and Me series. And some of those are for younger children with a diagnosis and some for the age of this uh, young girl here. So there are tons of resources. And I would spend time orienting her to that so that she can deepen her understanding of what this is but allow her be annoyed allow her be frustrated because I think the great news here is she's expressing that and expressing Mm -hmm. it openly Uh, we did an item on this uh, a few months back that uh, GCHQ the kind of headquarters of the spy agency uh, have a policy of hiring people with dyslexia because they're very good at pattern recognition or they've they can see patterns other people can't so you know it's it's might seem like a, a an impediment but actually it's a skill Absolutely. And it's just it's nothing to say there's anything wrong. It's about this is your brain learns differently. And now that we know that we can put things in place. And I think that's really helpful as well, that she doesn't think there's something wrong with her because there isn't. Absolutely. My uh, uh, where am I? My 18 year old daughter comes into our bedroom most nights around midnight saying she hasn't done enough work for the leaving cert. We remind her about predicted grades, but I think this is only going to escalate until the exams. Any advice? I mean, it's just such a normal, understandable, contextualized worry. And so you're going to support her through it rather than take her from it, if that makes sense. Um, you know, I've, I always when we're talking about anxiety, and particularly in adolescence, some degree of anxiety is normal and healthy, not pleasant but is normal and healthy. And that is anxiety that has specific context like this, anxiety that is transient. You know, I'm, I'm worried about my exams. I'm worried about, and when the exams are done, the worry will go, okay? And I'm not saying that to dismiss it and say it's nothing, but just also not to pathologize it as something it isn't either. So it's lots and lots of nurturance, lots of acceptance, lots of empathy, lots of being there. What do you need? Let's think about it out loud together. What would help you? Shall we go for a walk? Let's take a study break. What can I do to help you through this? So you're not saying don't be worried. It's nothing. You don't have to think about it. But you're actually being with me as I find my way through it. 
anxiety that isn't context specific, anxiety that's pervasive, it's there more often than it's not, and um, that I don't know what I'm anxious about. Sometimes I'm anxious about being anxious. In fact, um, that kind of anxiety we'd look at as an over and above anxiety. But this does have a very specific context. And if in other areas of her life she is doing generally well, then I would say this is about really getting her through this time period. And it is quite normal. Again, I'm not saying it's pleasant, but it's quite normal to feel mm. worried about taking exams, particularly the leaving cert, because your entire educational experience thus far is a build up to this moment. So while as adults, we often go to listen, the leaving cert, it's not the be all and end all. There's much more to life. That's not helpful when you're in it, because if you think back to when you were doing it yourself, nothing felt bigger than this. Yeah. Nothing felt more important than this. And I've been conditioned through my education to think of it this way. So just stay with me and reassure me that you're going to help me get through it by staying with me. That's the most important thing. Lots of nurturance, though, lots of whatever makes her feel better. You know, for some kids, that's lots of snack breaks. For some of them, it's cuddling up on the sofa and watching movies. For some, it's getting out for exercise. For some, it's definitely not that. Whatever it is for her, that you're there with her to get her through it. I think the Leaving Cert isn't just for the Leaving Cert student. It's an experience for parents as well. It's the family that take the Leaving Cert in lots of ways. Yeah, indeed. Uh, now, just going back uh, uh, to the uh, six-year-old uh uh, well, I don't know if we don't know if the six-year-old was wondering about anything, but certainly the parent was thinking of teaching them about mm. puberty. Uh, this texter says, uh, talking about body parts, my five-year-old girl was with her nana and out of nowhere informed nana that she had a china. Needless to say, Nana hadn't a clue what she was on about. She persisted in telling Nana that she does know because she has one too. All girls have them. Nana clicked what she meant and repeated <laughs> the correct word. Oh, yes, a vagina. My five-year-old promptly corrected her by saying, no, Nana, it's a china. Mama said so. So that's uh, I've, I actually heard the China word I've, I've certainly heard before. Uh, as for the uh, as for the, the one year old uh, not saying mama yet, uh, B says uh, both my wife and one of my own first words were the name of the dog. I wouldn't worry too much about it. Uh, someone else says our daughter's first word was Batman due to our older brother. Don't take it personally. Joanna, uh, thanks a million as ever. Joanna Thank Fortune you. there. You are listening to the Moncrief Show on News Talk. We're going to take a commercial break. After that, the Emperor Nero. Maybe not so bad. Moncrief on News Talk.